Reader's Entertainment Radio presents Booklights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Booklights, where we're shining a light on good books. Well, hello, everyone. We are pumping our way through November. I can't believe we are almost to Thanksgiving. What is time? Since the pandemic hit, it's like the slowest time and the fastest time. So anyway, wherever you are, it is Monday and it's a whole new week. And I'm very excited that you're here today because we have a great domestic thriller coming up from Lynn Reeves. And if you've never read her books before, you're in for a treat. And I'm just going to read her bio here so that you can get to know her. Lynn Reeves is an internationally recognized family counselor and novelist. Her short fiction essays and articles have appeared in Parents Magazine, Psychology Today, Solstice Literary Magazine, Craft Literary, uh, Brain Child, and more. And she regularly appears as a media guest expert to discuss contemporary family life and preventative mental health, which is so important right now, everyone out there. (laughs) This is her first novel of domestic suspense. And you can learn more about her on her website. I did put a link right there on Blog Talk. So if you're listening live or if you're listening later, you can click that anytime and go check out her website, sign up for her newsletter, find out um, where her next appearances will be. And I don't want to delay anymore. Lynn, are you there? I sure am. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being here. And your new book is called The Dangers of an Ordinary Night, which sounds intriguing just from the title. But do you want to tell everyone why they should run out and grab it this week? What's the book about? Sure, sure. So I have, you know, always had uh, a passion for theater, love plays. And when I was in high school and college, I acted in plays. And so I knew that someday I would return to the theater in a novel. And so this particular uh, domestic suspense novel begins in the theater when two girls are auditioning for a play at a performing arts high school in Boston, and they go missing after an audition. Two days later, the girls are found. One is alive and one is not. And three people step in to try to figure out what happened. The girl's mother, a detective, and the reunification therapist that has to help the teenager reacclimate to her family. Wow. How long were they missing? They were missing two days, and all of it's a blur to the girl that's returned. And so with the help of those three people, she tries to uncover what happened, and they do too. And, of course, all of their stories collide. It's a story of lots of blind spots in relationships and a lot of deception in partnerships, and all of that plays out in amongst the theater and a small town south of Boston on the coast of Massachusetts. I love that. And can you tell people, because I feel like this is a new genre that publishers are are starting to label, because the thriller genre really exploded a few years ago, and so now they're separating it into different things. So can you explain to the readers listening what a domestic thriller is? Sure. So I have a background in family counseling. I am a registered nurse, and I've got my master's degree in counseling and education. And so I've been working in the field of family life for many, many years. And to me, a domestic suspense novel or a psychological thriller is really exploring the relationships at, at the heart of the suspense, 
right? So in this case, for me, it's absolutely that this story is about family. It's about what happens when partners lie to one another, when they keep secrets from one another, what happens when families aren't honest with each other. And in domestic suspense, we're looking at that fast-paced psychological ride toward trying to figure something out to try to get to the bottom of a story, but it centers on the people in a family. I love that. So people who are looking for a procedural, this isn't it. This is really the psychological twistiness of, you know, secrets with people who think they know each other, right? Right. Well, that's true. I I think family is is all through this story. Um, The main characters are a woman and her husband who struggles with addiction and the impact that that has on their marriage and on their parenting. Uh, At the same time, because I've introduced uh, a police detective who must figure out what went on, there is that procedural element as well. The character of Fitz, yeah, the character of Fitz Jameson, who's, you know, really trying to figure out what happened, it's also raising issues in his family. It's also making him look at the family secrets that he's been harboring. And, um, again, his family comes into play here as well. Oh, my gosh. And so was there an inspiring incident that you saw on TV or that was in your local paper or, you know, what really inspired that idea? So the story itself or the plot uh, was not something that came from the news or from any experience that I've had personally. But what did come from my life and my own experience is that in my counseling practice, I had heard story after story of the impact of addiction on families, particularly on what it meant for women to be caretakers of partners who struggled and what it felt like to be someone that was in a way responsible for the destructive choices that their partner was making and how that impacted their parenting. So I had heard a lot about addiction in families and it really, at one point I thought I would actually write nonfiction about it. And, um, but more and more I was pulled toward writing a fictional story about addiction in families because people have a very difficult time examining this very, very challenging topic within their own lives. And it became clear to me that perhaps if people had a novel where they could examine the choices of fictional characters from a safe distance, there would be a lot that they could learn about how to talk about their own situation. I love that because, and that kind of dovetails into, I was going to ask you the difference between writing um, fiction versus nonfiction and how do you, you know, those are two very different hats. So how do you, you know, merge that into a fictional novel? How do you step out of your counselor role and, and watch characters make horrible decisions? (laughs) Right. Well, you know, in the counseling experience, uh, people talk in story. So they're talking about their story. They're talking about the way that they can construct their narrative. You know, the stories we tell ourselves versus the stories that others tell. And so counseling, the counseling experience is about story. So whenever something comes up again and again and again, it prompts me to think about how I might write about it. And I'm always trying to figure out whether or not I will go down the path of writing it as nonfiction with a prescriptive feel to it. In other words, here's how to contend with something. Um, Or whether or not story that is fictionalized 
but then again gives us that safe space to talk about it. A lot of people think about my fiction as book club fiction, and I'm always delighted by that because to me what that means is that there's something there to discuss with other people. And if people walk away from reading my work and they've got an issue to discuss or unpack or examine, uh, I'm thrilled for that. And I think fiction is a beautiful vehicle for that. Definitely. And sometimes it's funny when you say, you know, that you can examine it. It's easier to examine it in an outside. I think about that when when I'm working with writers, too, and you're talking about a certain type of scene, it's much easier to see what's happening in someone else's than your own because you're too close to it, right? So would this be kind of that same feeling for a family? You feel defensive and picked on when (laughs) when it's pointed at you, but when you see it somewhere else, it's easier to maybe, you know, take that in, right? You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. And I would also say that one of the things that I tried to examine in this novel is how when we're really close to other people, we can't see things either. So what I try to underscore in the novel is that people who can't see what's happening inside their own family needn't blame themselves or feel at fault but because that's the nature of family, which is that we know see people so well And yet we can't ever know people fully. They are their own person. They either tell us things or they don't. They either reveal themselves to us or they don't. And so we don't need to feel bad about that. We just need to acknowledge that it's true. Um, And so I I really try to get into that a lot in in this story, which is where are your blind spots and what do you know and what don't you know about the people that you're the closest to? Is it difficult for you when you're writing a book like this and you are a therapist? Is it difficult for you to allow the characters to make these horrible choices? Uh, It really isn't um, because I kind of have a worldview that we're all a combination of our best selves and our worst selves. I don't think people are all one note. I think we are all flawed. We have our own struggles and vulnerabilities, and I don't, I don't judge that. I see that as just a given. Uh, You know, whether or not you've got one personal struggle or another, um, that's what it means to be human. And so I I actually don't. My characters are quite flawed, and I love them dearly. (laughs) (laughs) You have no problem loving them. I have no problem loving them. (laughs) And I feel that way about about really everyone I know, which is that none of us are perfect. And, and thematically, we often struggle with the same things over the course of our lives. It's almost like we, we, we have a quest to learn something about ourselves or solve something for ourselves in our lives, and we revisit it. Many mm-hmm. of my novels revisit grief and loss because I had early grief and loss when I was a teenager. My father died unexpectedly, and it really changed the course of our family life. And I revisit those themes again and again to make sense of it. That's true. As writers, um, after you have a book or two out, it's easy to start seeing a theme that recurs, and it almost always is a reflection of the writer. You, you can't you can't help it. You know, I was an only child. All of my books are always around found family, um, <laughs> you know, finding yes. your, your group. And you just can't help it because that's really the emotion that, you know, formed, that formed who you are and how you see the world, right? 
Absolutely. And I think that the other thing is, you know, when we talk about any, any writers out there who are listening, when we talk about voice, we're talking about the voice of the characters coming alive on the page. But we're, when we talk about the voice of the writer, I think it often goes to those themes that keep being revisited, right? Yes. And, and so the collective body of work is, is the writer's voice. What is the writer continuing to try to understand? And it's through writing that we do understand. That's how we discover what it is we need to know. Uh, and I love that about writing. Yes, me too. And I love that as a reader, you know, I, I was a voracious reader before I became a writer, and I still read a lot. And and I love that no matter what a writer writes, their voice is still there. So it feels like when I settle into a book by a favorite writer that I'm just right into, you know, I, I know what I'm going to be getting, even though it's a different, you know, book and story, and that there's comfort in that. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so funny because I have written novels under my name, Lynn Griffin. My full name is Lynn Reeves Griffin. And I've written book club or women's fiction under the name Lynn Griffin. And this is my first novel of domestic suspense under Lynn Reeves. But what I try to tell people is that though I turned up the dial on the stakes and the tension and there's a crime and there's definitely a fast-paced, twisty ride to discover what happened – at the core of the story, it's still about families. That's what I write about. I right. write about mm-hmm. I write about relationships and what what makes it easy for us to love people and what makes it hard for us to love people. And so, even though this is, uh, you know, my first foray into this genre, uh, the the sort of core of the story is still family, and it's still what it is we need to understand in relationship to other people, how we connect. Yes, yes. And speaking of that kind of thing is when you you became a um, therapist and a, an RN and all that kind of thing, so you were obviously interested in relationships, but did, did you always want to be a writer? What did your writing journey look like in between, you know, <laughs> studying to be an RN and all that kind of thing? Did you just decide to write later? Were you inspired by people you were helping or how did it all come about for you so you know when I was a a young girl and when I was even just a little kid uh, I had a passion for storytelling I was really into playing with my dolls I was very much into singing acting dancing Um, I was in theater until you know well after college Uh, but at the same time I was told that going to school for theater, which is what I wanted to do, uh, was not an option, that that wasn't going to be a way I could make a living. Um, And I was channeled into the more practical medical field. Uh, Um, uh So so there was a part of me that was always (laughs) feeling, feeling adrift, missing my creative outlet, really wanting my my touchstone of storytelling. And so it wasn't until after I was writing more nonfiction, you know, health education, parenting material, that I started feeling like I'm spending a lot of time writing, but I'm not writing what I wish I was writing, right? I wish I was in a more creative vein here. And so I started writing fiction for myself, and I didn't really think that anything would come of it. Uh, But then one thing led to another, and I showed my first novel, to my editor for nonfiction, my agent for nonfiction, and the next thing I knew, 
I I'm this is my fourth novel. So oh my I found my cre- <laughs> I found my creative home <laughs> in writing fiction. Um and of course it felt inevitable that I would someday write about the theater. Right, right. Well and I have to ask, if you were a theater geek all through school, what was your favorite role? Oh, I was a theater geek all through school. <laughs> and my favorite role was my first lead. I got the part of Mabel Normand the famous silent yeah. actress, in the play Mac and Mabel. And um, Mabel was originally played on Broadway by Bernadette Peters. So she was a she was an icon to me, still is. She's a phenomenally yes, talented she actress. Is. And that play is so much fun. It's not well known, but the music is extraordinary. Oh, I love that. Did you watch Mozart in the Jungle? I did. <laughs> Yes, that was she fantastic. was so fantastic in that. Yes, she's fantastic in everything. You have to watch it. <laughs> yeah, she's actually wonderful in everything. She was recently cast in Zoe's playlist, or Zoe's oh. extraordinary playlist, uh, which was on uh, you know network television for a couple of seasons. She's just mar- she's a marvel. She really is. Yes, she is very fantastic. She is fantastic in everything she does, but but um, her trying to hold together the New York Symphony was really special. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> yep, definitely. Yeah. And the play, the play that I feature in the Dangers of an Ordinary Night, is the play Spring Awakening. And actually, the funny thing is today, uh, November fifteenth, is the fifteenth anniversary of that opening. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all the all so the many coincidences, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we were talking before before the show about where you live up there in Massachusetts, and you were telling me that that the the book is really set like in your hometown. How fun was that for you to highlight things that you can walk by every day? It's It's been really great fun. It's a beautiful town on the coast of Massachusetts that has a lot of these sort of tiny little pockets of landscape that are really special. And there's one in particular that has a, a, a lot of history attached to it, and it's a very remote part of the town. And theoretically, you don't have permission to go out there. And so that, of course, intrigued the writer in me to put a crime yes. To set a crime, <laughs> right. you know. The minute you say to a novelist it's remote and inaccessible, then suddenly yes. it takes on meaning. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Are there any other genres you've been dying to write, or is is did you have so much fun with this? You're going to write some more thrillers, or what? What's up for you? So I definitely had a lot of fun with this, I think, because turning up the dial on the elements of craft that make something suspenseful and psychological and intriguing um, is also really, really the key to what relationships are about, you know, what's at stake and why something matters. So I will stay in this genre for a while. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, The good news is I've got another uh, novel of the same vein coming out next year so uh dark rivers to cross will be published this time next year uh and that's also a family story that has uh, a lot of suspense and psychological twists and turns in it uh so it's a it's a great space for me right now 
Is it going to be a standalone, or like, do you have that same detective in the next book? Is it a series, or? So the one that's coming out next year, Dark Rivers to Cross, is a standalone. Uh, that said, I feel that there's a couple of characters in The Dangers of an Ordinary Night that may not be finished speaking to us. So oh, I may be okay. revisiting them. Okay, so you, there could be a series in the works. There could be. There could be. <laughs> oh, you know so how that I've works. Been, I do know how that works. <laughs> Your brain's <laughs> like, I don't know. What about that guy? He had an interesting <laughs> job. <laughs> Was that really his it's job? Or <laughs> right. I mean, you just, just a get a sense of when there's still more story to be told, right? And And yes. that's really how you know, I think, whether or not characters – you know, a lot of readers will say, oh, can we see more of these characters or those characters? And sometimes it's very clear to me that, no, everything we needed to know or explore through that character has been done. Um, but like I said, there's a couple of characters, the the psychiatrist and the detective in this particular no- uh, novel, The Dangers of an Ordinary Night, that really have more to say. And um, and right. I left it that I left it that way. When readers get to the end, I won't spoil any twists. Um, but when you get to the end of the story, there's there's definitely some things that are are left, left hanging unfinished. in the balance. <laughs> yes. yes, I love that. <laughs> so I've been asking everyone because we've been living through this unprecedented plague times, and for a lot of writers. I have friends who like to go write, you know, out at the coffee shop so they can people watch and all this kind of thing. And then everything shut down. And for some people it was crippling and for other people it was, yay, no distractions. I've trained for this my whole life. Um, You know, how was it for you writing during these crazy times? It's been really difficult. Um, And at the same time, I, as far as my writing process goes, that hasn't changed much because I've always written in the same place, which is in my house, and I have mm-hmm. a, a lovely, cozy office uh, off to the side. That's just a wonderful place to write, and, and I'm very at home there. Uh, but it's been more difficult because my entire counseling practice had to go virtual, and that oh. was that was super difficult because you know when you when you do a lot of consulting like i do with schools schools uh have had so many challenges to face and i've been doing that kind of consulting support to schools uh virtually and everything's been about the pandemic and the influence on teaching and learning so that part's been super super hard on the on the counseling side on the writing right. side on the novelist side i'm in my element because it's more time in that lovely little cozy space to write and it's where I'm comfortable doing it. So, so that part has sort of remained unchanged. Did it did it kind of overwhelm you to have both of your jobs now in one place? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I would have to say that you know, like like many people, um, you know, investing in high quality sweatpants was a good idea. Right. Um, <laughs> Yoga pants. <woo-hoo. laughs> you know, I mean, you, I, I, you definitely have to try to delineate your days and nights and. Um, you know, there are times I'm, I'm actually pretty good now about having a time where I complete work and I don't go back in there, which at the beginning of the pandemic wasn't actually, wasn't actually what I was doing. I I felt like I was in there 24 seven. Now I've made it very clear that I, I begin work and I end work and then I don't go back in there. 
because you really do have to make some routines uh, mm-hmm. to make you feel like your life isn't just a blur. Right, right. And and you need some boundaries with the work because when you're working from home, suddenly it can become, you know, that this is what I do and you don't do anything. Right. Else. So, well, yeah, and also so that's, 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 the, that's the danger of a writer anyway. Like once I'm drafting mm-hmm. a new piece, I'm thinking about it 24-7 as it is. Uh, yes. You you probably have that experience. You know, you, you're dreaming chapters yes. and you're dreaming plot twists. So it's already well, your hard poor family to, has to listen to about yeah. all the fictional characters and everything they offer. And I go, um, no, that won't work. But <laughs> yes, why do you exactly. Even ask me? <laughs> exactly. So when you're when you're drafting a piece, you you already can't shut your mind off from the evolution of the story. So, you know, again, this is one more challenge in that in that same picture. Um, but at the same time, I would have to say I'm super grateful that I have maintained work and that I've had the bandwidth to write my stories. I know that that's not true for many, and, and I know that I'm really right. fortunate that I still have good work and that I still have, uh, you know, the ability to write these stories. So so in that in that sense, I try to keep my focus on the positive. Right, right. And I think part of the positive that will come out of all of this is that everyone has learned how to operate virtual things like Zoom and and all that kind of stuff so that we can um, make things more accessible for people who can't travel, like writing-wise, writing conferences that have a virtual option now. It's going to impact so many people in the future because so many people couldn't you know, couldn't travel, and now they can still participate. And I think that that is a cool thing to come out of all of this, you know, to it kind of makes the world a little bit smaller, don't you think? I do. And I think that one of the, you know, my book's only been out a week, but I've already experienced the idea that through events like this one, conversations like this one, people can, you know, join in and participate, and people can come to virtual bookstore events that they wouldn't. Yeah have been able to come to. And I think that's really powerful. I think, you know, writers in conversation with one another. Um, you know, I've got a few events coming up where I'm going to be, you know, talking with Lisa Genova and Angie Kim, and that wouldn't be able to happen because we live in different places. So there are right. some lovely, lovely parts of it, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And we're very lucky that a massive world impact thing like this happened now and not in the nineties when we didn't have the internet and <laughs> we didn't have the internet and zoom. And I can only imagine how miserable and awful that all would have been. So I'm right. very grateful for the technology that, that we've got so that, you know, when it first, when the fr- first lockdown came, uh, my writer friends and I in San Diego would we used to get together once a month and meet up for dinner and we would talk writing and, and when the pandemic hit and we realized when it first hit, we were like, well, we'll see you at the end of the month. Cause it's just for three weeks. Um, right. <laughs> and we were so innocent. Um, but when it turned out it was going to be for months and months and months, we started a monthly game night and, and they have, you know, different Jackbox games and things that you can play virtually while you're on zoom and so we could still connect and i was so grateful for that oh my gosh i looked forward to it just to be able to 
you know, converse with people who are outside of your household. And so I'm very grateful that those things have come out of the pandemic because, you know, grandparents and grandkids and people can FaceTime and Zoom. And I just think that's really neat. Absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the writing and reading opportunities for readers and writers to connect together have been, have come out of the pandemic. Uh, your, your, you know, listeners might be aware or may not be aware of, of organizations like Mighty Blaze and Mystery Thriller Mavens. These are people who created opportunities for readers and writers to connect that didn't exist before the pandemic. And now they do and they're right. robust and wonderful and, um, and just have endless events that people can tune into from the comfort of their own home. So you're absolutely right that there are some upsides. Uh, and also, you know, thank goodness for the Internet that we can spread the word about good books. Yes, for sure, definitely. Um, we're rapidly running out of time, but I wanted to find out how can readers connect with you because that is something neat now that we have back in the day, you know, nobody – Nobody could reach out and message Ernest Hemingway, but if they read your book and they have questions or they're really excited, are you on social media? Do you have a page on your website? How do you like readers to get in touch with you? Oh, thank you so much, yes. Um, because I write under this this particular novel under Lynn Reeves, but my full name is Lynn Reeves Griffin, I, my handles and my website are, are any combination of that name. But the website is Lynn Griffiths. <laughs> That's the one bit of confusion, confusion that I have added for, to my life. Uh, but my website is lynngriffin.com. My Instagram handle is Lynn Reeves Griffin. And I would love for, for readers to be in touch. Uh, it's other, another neat piece of information is that my publisher did feel that the book had book club potential, and so they have included the book club guide in the hardcover, which is a real, a real treat and a gift. So the guide is right in the novel if people think that this is a topic that they'd love to talk more about. Oh, that's wonderful. So everyone run out and grab the book this week. It's called The Dangers of an Ordinary Night. And thanks so much for being here, Lynn. It was great meeting you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm, I'm happy to have been here. Thanks. <laughs> Talk Thanks to for too. joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.